recorded live. Welcome to IEQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Yes, the rules have changed. have changed. Good day wherever you're listening from and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio for Friday, March 25th, 2011. This week, episode 202 comes to you from Studio C in beautiful McKees Rocks, Pennsylvania. My name is Joe Hughes of Radio Joe. Here with me in the studio is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. Good to be here, Joe. Good Back to be here. saddle, both at the same oh, table yeah, again. Right. It's great. And at the controls, our engineer, Austin, Stone Cold. Novak. Today's segments include the IAQ Radio Trivia Question, an interview with IEQ pioneer and educator Mike McGinnis. We'll have our halftime with IE Connections, Glenn Fellman. Go back to our interview and then finish with the roundup. Check out our Facebook page. It's at IAQ Radio Program. I also want to make sure before we get started, we thank our marquee sponsors. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news, Visit them at cleanfacts.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right. To contact the show, just follow the link on the invitations or, of course, go to our iaqradio.com website and follow the link that says go to the show. You can join us there. Of course, we also have people download the show Afterwards, you can stream live from our homepage. You can go to the Talk Shoe link there and download the show from there, or, of course, you can get it from iTunes. We also have ABIH Certification Maintenance Points, IICRC Continuing Education Credits, and ACAC Renewal Credits available by emailing me and requesting a quiz. My email is joe.hughes at iaqtraining.com. Last but not least, please visit that IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio Trivia Question. Thanks, Joe. Well, 
win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IQ Radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IQ Radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is easy. Email it to czlotnick at cs.com. Or if you're listening live via your computer, just text the answer into the show. Congratulations. To John Lapotere, MicroShield Environmental Services, Winter Springs, Florida, for being one of the first people to correctly identify mercury as the answer to last week's trivia question. Guess seven. Uh, if you want to text in your contact information, uh, please do, and we'll send you a gift as well. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, March 25th, 2011, has been sponsored by Cochrane Associates, the indoor air quality industry's dedicated marketing and public relations firm. Now the question. Today is the 100th anniversary of the worst industrial accident in New York City history. Name it. Back to you, Joe. All right. Thank you, Cliff. Well, let's welcome IAQ Radio. Welcomes pioneer practitioner and educator Mike McGinnis. Mike's a certified industrial hygienist, a certified environmental trainer, and a certified indoor air quality professional. He began his career in industrial hygiene and occupational health with the New Jersey Department of Labor back in 1974. He also worked for six years with the Occupational Safety and Health Administration before returning to the New Jersey Department of Labor as their senior occupational health consultant. In 1984, he joined the private sector when he started RK Occupational and Environmental Analysis, Inc. to provide industrial hygiene, occupational health, and indoor environmental quality consulting and training services for a wide range of public and private sector clients. Mike was also an instructor for Merck, the Mid-Atlantic Environmental Hygiene Resource Center, he actually founded and wrote a lot of their courses and was in charge of a lot of their mold remediation courses in particular. He has also participated in numerous industry standards writing activities and is an instructor for the Restoration Industry Association's Water Lost Specialist course. We've got a little music for Mike. In the research section of the Public Health Service, scientists are searching for the answer. They are searching for it in their laboratories with experiment and study with equipment and men geared to do the job. They search for the understandings of metal poisoning, for ways to fight dust hazards and fatigue. They study the science of ventilation and lighting. Every problem of workers' health is part of their work. And the men who work here go to other government agencies and to industry and help them meet their industrial health problems. Okay, Mike, I, it wasn't music exactly, but I'm not sure where Cliff got that. No, there was a little music back there. Was that a government uh, website? Yeah. Okay. Well, actually, it was on, we got it off YouTube. It was, I think, 1941, uh, U.S. government. A little before hygiene. your time, Mike. Good day, Mike. Hey, guys. How you doing? Great. Thanks for joining us. We appreciate having you here. Thanks for having me. Mike, I, I have a quick question. I know... We, we did a little background on, you know, prior to getting involved with the indoor environmental quality area. And I guess in 1984, you started RK. And I'm, I'm curious, what, how did you get the name RK? I knew you were going to ask that. <laughs> you can knows. RK stands for Ralph Cramden. <laughs> I knew that, too. That's a classic. All right. I didn't know that. We so. named it after the Honeymooners. Uh, we were watching an episode one night where... Uh, Ed Norton and Ralph were shooting pool with Ralph's boss, and Norton had all these great ideas. And uh, he, uh, you know, the, Ralph's boss is very impressed. He offers Norton uh, the job as bus driver supervisor, and 
Norton said, well, if I'm going to take it, Ralph, I think you better call me Mr. Norton for the first few weeks so it doesn't look like I'm showing any favoritism. <laughs> and uh, that steamed Ralph up. And uh, the uh, denouement of the whole thing was the fact that uh, uh, Norton realized it was Ralph's ideas, and uh, he said, I'd be happy if you called me Ian if I could call you RK. And the light bulb went off, and uh, the rest is history, for better or for worse. Wow. Okay. You know, I, I just learned you you played a little golf in college, and uh, it, yes, it just reminds me of the show. Do you recall the show? Can you do a little Ralph Cramden where he was addressing the ball? Hello, ball. <laughs> was, uh, I, I think Norton, actually. He said, okay, address the ball. That was Norton ball. doing it. Yeah, my two favorite episodes are the one where Ralph hurt his back bowling uh, when he had a physical at work the next day, and the other one was uh, the show for the future. <laughs> well, Mike, let's go back before um, RK just for a, a real quick. Uh, I'd like to get a little more information about your background with the New Jersey Department of Labor and then OSHA. Can you start by telling us how you got involved with New Jersey Department of Labor? Well, I got out of college and I uh, was looking for uh, any sort of job, and uh, I saw a listing for an industrial hygienist at uh, uh, NJDOL. I had no idea what that was. So I went and applied, uh, and it helped that my dad was assistant commissioner for the department. So uh, surprisingly enough, I got the job. And uh, then we learned about, you know, what industrial hygienists do and, uh, you know, recognition, evaluation, control of health-related stressors and evaluation of controls uh, after we put them in. And from there, we moved down to, uh, at the time, New Jersey was a uh, state-planned state which meant that the state enforced OSHA regs uh, for the public or private industry. And uh, a lot of the unions didn't like that because they said there was uh, overlap between them and OSHA. So what happened was uh, New Jersey lost its uh, enabling legislation, and then OSHA came in and was supposed to you know, provide health and safety oversight for private industry, and they had nobody to do that. So all the guys from Jersey kind of laterally transferred over to the feds and uh, – it was a bad deal because I lost $1,500 a year in salary and had to work five extra hours a week. But, uh, hmm. you know, I was on a nice career track. We jumped up two GS levels every year for uh, three years. So it was pretty nice. And you did six years at OSHA? Yes. Tell us one of your uh, favorite OSHA stories, if you would. <laughs> well, there's <laughs> one, uh, actually, uh, where I'm driving down the road, uh, an industrial road in uh, New Brunswick, New Jersey, and I hear this pop. And I look in the mirror of my car, and I see flames shooting across the road. So, like any well-trained uh, IH, I said, let's go check this out. Where there's smoke, there's fire. <laughs> yeah. So I turned around, and I went, drove back to the plant. Uh, I went up to the guard gate, and uh, he goes, you know, what are you doing here? I have my government car, and he's like, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I'm here to investigate your explosion, which probably was within a minute of, of the explosion occurring. And he just looked down at me, and he goes, you guys are really good. <laughs> no, that yeah, was we in, had a, Go ahead. I'm just curious. That was in, in Jersey, um, close yeah, to home? Yeah, New Brunswick. New Brunswick. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Yeah. Did we you... covered New Jersey, New York. Uh, I'm sorry. New Jersey, New York, Puerto Rico, and the Virgin Islands. And I never did get a sign down to the Virgin Islands or Puerto Rico, but uh, I was holding out, and uh, things got to be whatever they were, and I left before... Uh, I ever got a furlough down to the Virgin Islands, but it is what it is. Whatever, what what happened there? Where at the explosion? What what caused oh. it? Oh, uh, operator error. The guy wasn't paying attention. The pressure built up. 
in a uh, a reaction line and uh, blew out a disc, which exactly you know the system worked because it blew out this disc and the flame shot out the side, so it wasn't really an explosion as much as just venting the uh, flammable gases and then the friction you know the gas under pressure ignited it and it shot across the road and burned itself out and it was all nice but it looked pretty cool in the rearview mirror I have to admit. <laughs> you know I don't know if well I remember taking uh, the mold course uh, in which you were one of the instructors at Merck. And I don't remember whether you were with Department of Labor or OSHA when you investigated, uh, I guess, a, a fatality in a paint plant. Do you remember that? Uh, where the guy, yeah, that, that was a, a confined space in Lockout Tagout deal where uh, the uh, maintenance guy went into it. It was a paint blending plant, and this guy went into the tank to uh, change the uh, rotors on the mixers or something like that. Didn't lock it out, uh, no teamwork, and ended up. You know, somebody came along and they started charging the tank again and turned it back on, and uh, they couldn't figure out what happened to this guy until they started noticing that the white paint that was supposed to come out of the tank uh, was pink. Ooh. So, sort of like, uh, sort of like that James Bond movie where the guy got chewed up in the uh, large snowblower. I guess. Ouch. Back to you, All right. Yeah, we saw a lot of. A lot of weird ways for people to get killed on the job if you're not paying attention. I'm sure. You know, Mike, I I just happened. I don't have it in front of me, but I um, I was looking at an OSHA statistic yesterday, and I I want to put it in my manual. I almost put it in my notes here. I want to say something like 463 people died on construction hazard pro- last in 2009. So this is not something that you know is old news. It's still occurring today. Does that sound about right? I don't know the statistics. I really haven't uh, checked them out lately. But uh, people are still getting killed on the job. People are still getting injured on the job, still getting maimed on the job. And uh, it seems like every time we have a change in administration, uh, the focus of the agency changes from advise- more of an advisory capacity to uh, an enforcement and back and forth, depending on who's in office. Uh, but uh, and it's always a fight to get money you know, for the agency to reappropriate things. And, uh, you know... OSHA is trying to do the best they can, I believe, with, with what they have. But, I mean, for example, they're still enforcing permissible exposure limits from 1971 that uh, they haven't been able to change because of the way the OSHA law is written. So they've gotten around that by citing general duty clause issues and things like that. But, uh, you know, it, like anything else, uh, it could use improvement. Well, Mike, for, from there, what made you decide to go? I know you went back to Department of Labor, and then you started RK. How how did you decide to get started with RK, or how did you get involved with the indoor environmental quality business? Well, uh, my first indoor air study. I was thinking about that when uh, you know when I was just thinking about what you guys might ask me and uh, what I might want to say it was in 1981 in an office building up in uh, North Jersey. And I went in there, you know, as an industrial hygienist, and they're like, oh, yeah, we have this and that and the other thing. You know, classic, you know, sick building syndrome stuff, you know, headaches and, uh, you know, eye irritation, all that jazz. So I did what any good IH at the time would do, and I went out there with a whole bunch of detector tubes and took all kinds of tests for anything and everything that we had detector tubes for and didn't find anything and said, I'm not seeing anything. And uh <laughs> Uh, looking back on it, that's not really the way to do an indoor air study, but, you know, you live and learn, uh, and there's a little bit different ways to do it now, and, you know, we learn as time goes by to evaluate a building uh, by figuring out what way air flows in the building, where your sources of pollutants are, 
and what the pressure differentials are in the building. And uh, once once you have your pollutant sources and your people located and your airflow pathways and pressures uh, identified, then you pretty much have your problem solved. So that gets back to those four Ps that I always talk about and, and that I keep talking about and keep hoping people listen to when we talk about it. What are the four Ps again? I'm going to ask you that, Cliff. You were in my mold class. What were they? Well, I'm the interviewer. Right? <laughs> I'll give it. A, I'll give it. A, I'll give it a shot, Mike. The way I have it is. Well, that's why there was uh, no test in that. Uh, yeah. About <laughs> 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 um, I use people, pollutants, pollutants, pathways, and pressure. That's it. All right, we got. That's it. Mike's trivia question for today. All right, okay. excellent, Mike. Looking, Good job, guys. I'm just curious. Looking back on that first project i mean i i assume you kind of went well i can't find anything here and i don't know what to tell you and maybe it's right. in their heads or whatever uh looking back do you think do you have any suspicions on what it may have been you missed oh i know exactly what's wrong i, I could do it now without even going there what's that uh <laughs> it was a sealed building no outside air uh crowded offices uh workstations that were very small lots of ergonomic issues from people it was a uh, like a, a call center or something and there was people scrunched in there all over the place uh, working on, you know, uh, computer monitors and taking calls and this and that. So high stress, high pressure, uh, little workspace, so ergonomic issues with, uh, you know, eye strain and headaches, no ventilation, and uh, no breaks. So, yeah, it was pretty – looking back on it, it was pretty easy. It wasn't <laughs> so easy when I started. Well, we've come a long way since 1981. Um, now, yeah, I, uh, let's see, uh, 29 years. 30 years. 30 years. Wow. Yeah, we've come a long way, Mike. What, <laughs> I'm curious, what year did you get your uh, CIH, your Certified Industrial Hygienist? I'm thinking like 1988 or something like that. 88. So after this. Somewhere occurred. around there. Okay. 86, 88. I lose track of all those important dates. I don't know why. I just. Uh, sometimes we do it on purpose, Mike. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> I'm curious, at the time, did the. Um, specialty IEQ certification exist? Not when I got certified. Okay. That didn't come into uh, effect probably until maybe the uh, uh, early mid-90s, let's say 92, 94, somewhere around there. And that didn't last very long, as I understand it. It was around? No. Okay. And and you're one of 70 in the world that maintains that? Yeah. yeah it's, uh, what happened was, the board discontinued it due to lack of interest on the parts of uh, part of CIHs to take the test. Wow! I guess it, it just beat it, which is very very surprising to me. Um, you know, because it's it's a very you know uh, specialized part of industrial hygiene. You know, a lot less emphasis on you know sucking air and sampling, and a lot more emphasis on evaluating uh, you know environmental parameters and HVAC performance and you know pathways and pressure, like I said. But uh, for some reason or other, it just uh, they just said, well, no one's even filing to take the test anymore, so uh, we're going to discontinue it. So there's 70 of us around, unless somebody has gone on to greater things uh, that I'm not aware of. But uh, there's about 70 that actually took the test, and most of the guys are guys you would know if you follow indoor air, you know, guys like Ken Martinez and Mike Crandall and uh, Eric Eswine and those folks, a lot of them from NIOSH. So... Uh, you know, it's a good way to position yourself, particularly now that they don't give the test, because that's it. <laughs> There's 70 of us, and that's it. You guys are you're a very elite club at this point. Yeah, it wasn't like I planned it or anything. No, I understand. But, but it was like, yeah, I'll tell you a funny story. It's like uh, as soon as I got uh, the letter in the mail that told me I 
you know, I passed my uh, CIH test. And the reason I knew is I saw the ad- it was addressed to Mr. Michael McGinnis, CIH. I'm like, yes! <laughs> yes! I don't even have to open it to find out what was what. And actually, being, being the kind of guy I am, I immediately wrote to the board and said, told them, I think your test is entirely too easy, and I think you ought to toughen it up, figuring <laughs> that I'll uh, limit my competition in some way, shape, or form. Well, Mike, since then, now, as I understand it, the ABIH, the American Board of Industrial Hygiene, they have, um, I guess, looked at, considered other certifications, and had a few start and stop, sort of like the uh, indoor environmental quality subspecialty. Can you tell our listeners real quick uh, r- right now, what's the position that you're aware of? Is it just going to be CIH for now? or no, they, they, uh, they also have a CAIH, which I believe is Certified Associate Industrial Hygienist, and that was for folks who... Uh, to qualify to take the CIH test, you had to be involved in, you know, industrial hygiene, health, and safety activities, you know, a vast majority of your time, you know, 80, 90 percent of the time. And there's some guys out there that may be split time between safety and health or environmental and health and safety. So uh, they came up with a, uh, you know, an associate certification for those folks who weren't full-time industrial hygienists. So okay. as, as far as I know now, it's CIH, CAIH, and the uh, ABIH subspecialty. I'm Curious, your opinion, should they uh, have more certifications? Do you think it's a good idea to just stick with a couple or one and make them good? I think they ought to stick with what they have and make them good and make them hard to get. And yeah, you should be allowed to get them if you know what you're doing and you can, yeah, and you can show the requisite work experience and get the proper references and pass the test. All right, let's take a look at the rest of the indoor environmental quality industry and the, the certification uh, alphabet available out there. Can you give us your thoughts on that? Well, uh, I don't know how many of those are actually certifications these days based on the ANSI-NOCA standard 1011, which separates a certificate course or a knowledge-based course where you come in and take a four-, three-, four-, five-day course then pass a test and get a certificate for doing that versus a you know a legitimate true third party certification. But it was funny. I was just I just Googled uh, mold certifications and uh, came up with oh my god, there's just all of these different certifying bodies all over the place. The one that caught my eye was N O R M I, and it caught my eye because I thought it said N O R M L for National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. <laughs> turned out to be a uh, uh, national organization for residential mold inspectors, and they have about uh, 28 or 30 different certifications you could get. So my feeling on most of these is that all it's doing is confusing the people that, you know, employ us, meaning the public, and, uh, you know, if you have guys going out there running around, you know, saying I'm a certified this or that or the other thing, uh, and they mess up, then uh, people are going to say, well, geez, all these certified people really don't know what they're doing. And I think uh, the industry is just getting saturated. I think there ought to be uh, a few certifications that are legitimate and that, you know, when you get that certification, you do what I did when I got mine, and I said, and you say, yeah, yep. heck yeah, that's yep. it. That's what I'm talking about. Rather than, you know, I mean, we're, we're getting, you know, we're starting to make progress. And uh, actually I was going through my stuff because uh, probably in about 1998, I was at an IAQA convention in Florida and, uh, I, I pretty much stole the microphone in, at a public session <laughs> and read this letter I wrote in, uh, about, you know, uh, I, p- 
people that are getting certified in the indoor air quality industry, I want them to get that feeling of, yeah, you know, when, when they pass that test and when they get certified. And, you know, I don't know if that was ever the case. Uh, and, you know, looking back on it, at, at least with respect to the, uh, you know, standard 1011, uh, they weren't getting certified. You know, it was a closed system. You had to take one guy's course. You had to, you know, for whatever amount of money. Then you had to join his association. Then you took his test. And you had a passing rate of about, you know, 101%. Uh, and then you got certified as, you know, certified, well, I call it cash, right? Certified air-sucking hygienist or whatever you want to have it. Uh, so at least we're starting to get a little better, and there's a few folks out there that are starting to get it, although, you know, offering, you know, 22 or 23 different certifications, I don't think there's anybody any good in the industry. And, uh, you know, uh, we used to have, for the CIH and the engineers, uh, after five, you know, up to five years' experience, you can be an engineer in training, an EIT, or an IH in training, IHIT. And then after five years, uh, if you qualified and passed the test, you became a CIH or a PE. And I think they probably ought to do the same thing with a lot of these certifications, rather than saying, well, at two years you become this, and at eight years you become that. And uh, you know, it, it's just it, it's too confusing to the public at large. Uh, although it's nice to uh, to have all these letters after your name, because I learned a long time ago. The more letters you can put after your name, the more money you can charge people that don't know what the heck those letters stand for. And uh, they think they're getting a good deal. But uh, you know, at least we're turning the corner and we're getting, we're moving forward a little bit, although I, I, I do believe we still have a lot of work to do. And uh, yeah, we, we, we need true third-party certification uh, with an open and honest uh, you know, uh, statistics that are given. I mean, you know, I can go back to the year I took my test. And I can tell you that 26% of the people that took that CIH test passed because it's it's in all the statistics that the uh, ABIH maintains. So, I mean, if you look at statistics and you see 94% or 99% or whatever people passing, how you know what kind of a certification is that? It, it doesn't do anybody any good. It dilutes the uh, the skill set of the folks that are you know have those initials after their name. It doesn't dilute the skill set, but what you know, there's so many people out there with the same initials. It just you know, it, it's not a good situation. You, you need somebody, uh, you know, if you, you, you should have to earn those initials. You should have to work hard to get them. I mean, I studied for three months for that test. And, you know, with the IH, it's like you could take any review courses you want, you know, uh, sort of like uh, like Taxi, that one issue, uh, one episode where the Reverend Jim was uh, filling out the application to get a taxi driver's license, and he gets done filling out the application, and they say, okay, Jim, you're ready to take the test. And he's like, Jeez, I thought that was the test. <laughs> so, you know, just to qualify to take the test, it wasn't easy. You know, you have to have all those references and the work experience that the board goes over and all that kind of stuff. So you know, I, I want it to mean something, and, and, and I just get the feeling, you know, being honest, like I've been known to be from time to time, uh, you know, I don't think that's there right now. You know, I want those guys to get certified to say, yeah, and, and, and that's how I feel about it. Well, I, I'm glad to hear you feel we're on the right track, and I, I... – can't disagree with anything you've said. Uh, let me just quickly re go back because the acronym police must have been asleep. ANSI NOCA, I know ANSI is the American National Standards Institute, and I don't know if you have the NOCA, N-O-C-A, uh, what that acronym stands for off the top of your head or not. I have it in my notes here. It's the, I think it's the National Organization of Certifying Agencies or something along those lines, but if you find it, I'd rather get it absolutely right. Hang on a second. I just wrote it down. And while you're doing that, I'll also 
uh, follow up by by saying that uh, we've got several third-party certifications available out there. And what I'd like to do after you find this, Mike, is get your thoughts on the difference between certifications for consultants and for contractors. And if you feel that it should be the same process or a slightly different process, or if you feel that contractors shouldn't be certified at all. I truly believe that all these certifications are used more as a marketing ploy than uh, any uh, effort to improve your skill set. Um, so, uh, and I do believe that the people doing the certifying should be the folks involved in that industry. For example, you know, I think uh, NATCA ought to certify duct cleaners, and I think the Thermography Institute ought to be the people that certify th- uh, IR thermographers. And I think the Board of Industrial Hygiene ought to certify industrial hygienists. And, you know, I believe, like I said, uh, one of my quibbles uh, with, with, you know, with uh, some of these uh, third-party groups out there, that, you know, they have so many certifications. It's like, you know, uh, we're getting to the point where I think, uh, you know, we'll have one guy certified to turn on an Anderson N6 air sampler. We'll have another guy certified to turn it off. We'll have a third guy to certify He'll be certified in how to tape the uh, plate shut, and then another guy to know how to pack it up and mail it out to the lab, and another guy at the lab to unpack it and plate it out and all that stuff. So it's almost getting, you know, getting, we call it reduction to absurdity. Yeah, I, I hear you, Mike. And, I, you know, you and I come from the old, uh, uh, I know you did a lot of asbestos and lead training, and we didn't have certifications. We had essentially training courses with a uh, an exam at the end. You passed the exam, and then you went and got a license in a lot of cases through a state agency, but there there was no certification. And I I know that was the concept back at Merck. Maybe you could talk to people a little bit about what Merck was and um, if you know where it is today. Well, Merck is near and dear to my heart. I mean, that was uh, the, you know, all the the names you know from uh, back in the earlier days uh, taught there, uh, you know, the Joe Stiebricks of the world and... uh, Chin Yangs and all those folks, uh, and um, it, it was a wonderful training agency. It covered a lot of territory for consultants, primarily when it started up. But then uh, Sue Smith came to me; she was the executive director down there. Came to me and said, "Yeah, we want to start up a mold remediation course, and uh, we can't think of anybody better to do it than you." And I'm like, "Sue, you're a wonderful judge of character. I have to agree." <laughs> And let's go over what, Mark, it's the Mid-Atlantic Environmental Resource Hygiene Center? No, Mid-Atlantic Environmental Hygiene Resource Center. Hygiene Resource, had them backwards, okay. And that was a consortium of how many schools, Mike? I don't know if it was a consortium of schools. It was out of the University City Science Center as uh, part of the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, they were a nonprofit. Uh, They produced, like I said, a, a lot of wonderful courses. They uh, were tight with EPA and uh, had a lot of early on, uh, you know, interface with EPA as far as what they thought would be, uh, you know, appropriate courses. And the one thing we were very proud of is we never certified anybody that took our courses. Yeah, and you you packed them in. I remember. That's actually where we met. I don't know if you recall, but... uh, I do. I remember you, Dieter, and one other guy sitting... Off to my right in the front row. All right. We were we probably were... trying to uh, butter, you know, brown nose the, uh, the instructors <laughs> and everything. I don't know if Dieter would do that, but we'll check with him <laughs> on the roundup. <laughs> I think we had a great time, though. Uh, yeah, that, that, was, that was a wonderful course. And lots of guys had called us and, you know, before coming in saying, you know, when we're done, do we get certified here? And I'm like, no, we can't certify you. 
yeah, we don't know you. We don't know your equipment. We don't know how well you work. But we will make you smarter in your competition, and that was always our uh, compact with our attendees. Great. And you did a great job. Cliff? Yeah, Mike, I'm sure in your career you've done a lot of uh, investigations uh, in schools. Uh, what are some of the challenges of doing indoor environmental quality inspections in schools? Well, uh, there's a lot of them. Number one, we have little kids there. So their needs as far as health exposures and those kinds of things are different. We have variable occupancies. We have, uh, you know, a lot of point sources of the pollutants in a high school. you got a chem lab. you got bio labs, art rooms. And some of these are basically industrially based uh, operations, you know, uh, vocational technical schools or auto body. Uh, you have... You may, you know, I, I talk to these school districts, and I'm like, well, how many buildings do you have? And they're like, well, uh, we have one high school and two grammar schools. And I'm like, okay, how many additions do you have to your high school? And they'll be like five. And I'm like, well, then you actually have six high schools <laughs> because each of those buildings is built at a different time, probably with a different architect, different HVAC, different needs, different, you know, different everything pretty much. So uh, it's, a, it's a challenge, but, uh, you know, we, we do enjoy schools. Uh, I'd say RK has probably done as many school IEQ uh, studies as anybody in the country. Uh, I'm pretty sure that actually uh, we, we contract with EPA to do school inspections. I actually just got done doing uh, uh, a 12-school uh, survey of uh, uh, schools in Baltimore, which was a wonderful experience. We went down there, and they picked out what they thought were their worst schools. And I'm thinking, you know, after I got done with their worst schools, I'm like, my God, if these are their worst schools, they're their best schools have to be absolutely fabulous. Oh, really? their, worst, their worst schools were wonderful. Huh. They were clean. They were dry. They had a minimum of chemicals. Uh, the, you know, it, it just, every, the, there wasn't one pencil on the floor in the hallways. It was just wonderful. Interesting. Mike, I think you bring up a great point that I want to make sure we emphasize for listeners, and, and I don't think anybody else has ever said it, Cliff, that when you're dealing with a school, like uh, with a building, let's say, that has had a lot of renovations, you are actually dealing with, in, in some cases, as many as five or six different buildings. So I think that's a great point to bring up. And uh, be, wanted to do that before we go to, we've got to go to halftime, Mike. If you can hang in there with us, we've got to thank our sponsors. We're going to bring Glenn Fellman on to say hello, and then we'll be right back. I'll be here. Thank you. Right. Our association sponsors are the National Air Duct Cleaners Association, NADCA, is the leading authority for information on HVAC inspection, cleaning, and restoration. Visit NADCA at www.nadca.com. The Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental... Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental and consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry, subscriptions, and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. 
John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon.com. And, of course, Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleanfactswithanx.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their products and services. I just love your office! A newspaper man has to have a good story. Writing just news is so factually boring. I get assignments that any could do. I am the scapegoat for all of the group. I'm mostly a figure they laugh at, but then I'll be a leader of men. Good afternoon, Glenn Fellman. Do we have you on the line? Good afternoon. I'm here and glad to be here. Great. Welcome back. It's been a while. It has been. I want to get back on the regular circuit here. I've been traveling a lot lately. It's been my fault, not yours. Uh, but uh, Well, welcome back. Forward. And uh, what's news? Well, uh, first, before I get into what's news, I want to say that, uh, you know, Mike McGinnis needs to be more opinionated. The guy just, you know, he never tells you what's on his mind. You got to try to read between the lines. It's really annoying. It's tough. (laughs) It's tough. Mike, I've known you a long time, and I'm glad to see that you haven't changed in that regard. Uh, I got a couple stories, but I want to lead off with with what I think is one of the biggest ones right now. Things are moving really fast in the state of Florida with respect to their mold-related services license. Now, just a quick background. Uh, a regulation for mold services licensing went, was enacted in 2007, but the effective date was moved up till July 2010, and then it got moved up again to July 2011 for enforcement. And uh, this was essentially to allow people to you know, meet, meet compliance without having to get you know, closed down out of business. So... Bear with me. So we have this new law that comes into effect. People have to apply by March 1st of this year. Enforcement is by July of this year. And thousands and thousands of contractors and consultants uh, in Florida who do mold remediation and assessment uh, go through a very lengthy process. They, they take tests. They fill out forms. They get fingerprinted. They submit evidence of done doing 40 or something jobs. Uh, huge, huge effort. Well, 15 days before March 1st, uh, a senator and a House representative from Florida introduced separate legislation companion bills to completely repeal the mold-related services licensing. And we started watching that real closely. Uh, now things have taken an even weirder twist. Uh, in the last uh, week or so, a bill was introduced, it's House Bill 5005. It deregulates virtually every profession and trade in the state of Florida. I think the only people who got spared were barbers, and I'm not being facetious about that. The barbers keep their licenses, but uh, surveyors, mappers, uh, caterers, healthcare workers, uh, you, a whole slew of people would have been deregulated. That bill, 5005, yesterday got amended, and now it has a new number, 5007. And now they're not going to deregulate quite so many things. Uh, this is deregulation light. But I'm looking at the mold part, and my head is spinning. Let me tell you why. Uh, The bill eliminates the requirements for applicants for mold licenses to hold at least an associate of arts degree with 30 credit hours in, like, microbiology or architecture or engineering. 
Um, instead, applicants must just have a high school diploma and pass an exam. That's it. Uh, the bill reduces the years of experience uh, required for applicants from three years to one year and reduces the experience shown through uh, submitting invoices uh, from 10, uh, from 40 to 10 to be grandfathered into the license. The bill deletes the requirements that mold assessors and remediators have to have training in water, mold, and respiratory protection. You can get, you can get the license without having had any of that training. And um, uh, this is another one that's uh, got my head spinning at least a little bit. Uh, to get licensed, you can, uh, you can do it without passing an exam. And you, you can either pass an exam given by a nationally recognized or state-recognized organization. Uh, currently, that's uh, the American Council for Accredited Certification. But now under this new proposal, uh, if you had one year of experience and 10 assessment or remediation invoices under your belt, you could go ahead and apply uh, as of uh, through July 12th. No testing, no requirement. So. By my reading of this, what they've done is is they've gone from having a, a fairly stringent mold licensing rule, set of rules that weeded out, uh, you know, quote, unquote, the, the bad apples from the good to having watered down requirements that make it very easy for almost anybody to become a, you know, state licensed, you know, card holding mold remediator, mold assessor. It seems like a completely backward step to me. And I want to caveat all my comments today by saying I am speaking about uh, these things as myself, as Glenn Feldman, as publisher of Indoor Environment Connections, and not on behalf of any of the organizations and, and associations I work with, because uh, some of them may not have the same um, positions I do on this. But if you want to read this stuff, and I really recommend you do, uh, just look under uh, uh, myfloridahouse.gov and search for Bill 5007 or 5005. Uh, look at the analysis. Look at the bill text. Uh, take a look at what else it's doing for home inspectors who now be able to do uh, mold-related work without having to have a mold license. General contractors and other types of contractors also would be exempt from mold licensing. Just a, a really bizarre turn of events. Interesting. Well, we'll keep people posted, Glenn. You got one more for us? I do. The feds have changed the guidelines on toxic drywall. Hmm. For all those people out there who've had uh, their electrical wiring ripped out and replaced because of uh, problem drywall, guess what? Now uh, uh, the Consumer Product Safety Commission and HUD have said that really wasn't necessary. Uh, they've done some new studies, and they say that the uh, long-term exposure of wiring and other electrical components to hydrogen sulfide gases does not indicate a safety hazard to a home's electrical systems. Um, with these changes, the remediation guidelines for homes with problem drywalls calls for the replacement of the drywall, uh, fire safety alarm devices like smoke detectors and carbon monoxide uh, alarms, electrical distribution components like receptacles, switches, and circuit breakers, but again, not wires, and gas service piping and fire suppression sprinkler systems. This is one of those instances where, you know, you have a toxin in the indoor environment. You recognize that it's a problem. You're not exactly sure how it's a problem. The uh, uh, first reaction was, let's, let's gut everything and take it all out. And now we're starting to see those guidelines uh, come back in a little tighter. Whether that's good or bad or right or wrong, I'm not sure, but it is a big change. And then one more real, real quick. There's a new indoor environment guide available from ASHRAE. It's guideline 10. 
Uh, its uh, title is Interactions Affecting the Achievement of Acceptable Indoor Environments, and I recommend everybody read that. You can get it at ashray.org. Thanks, Glenn. I'm glad you brought that one up. It was in the show announcement today. For those of you that get it, there's a link to the ASHRAE site. And we did two shows with Hal Levin, who was instrumental in uh, helping get that one finalized with ASHRAE. And I believe we had another guest that was part of that committee, too. But I'll, I'll have to double-check on that. But thank you, Glenn. Can you join us for the roundup? I'd be glad to. Great. We'll see you then. Let's get Mike back on the line. Hello, Mike. Uh, Mike, I'm, I want to switch... Hello? Gears a little bit. You still with us, Mike? Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Great. Okay. Great. I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, you have been very involved with the Restoration Industry Association and their water loss specialist program. And as a health and safety guy that uh, has been doing this for a long period of time, I'm curious, what would, what would you, in your opinion, be the most commonly overlooked health and safety issue during water damage restoration? Probably an emergency response plan. Ah, okay. All right. So having an emergency response plan for what types of incidents? Well, uh, you know, a building collapse, uh, just what happens if you have a fire, where do you go, who do you, you know, who do you call, where's the hospital, just real basic, you know, simple, basic safety stuff like that. I very rarely see a fire extinguisher inside containment. So fire safety uh, has, has a communication is a big one. Uh, the one thing I do see with a lot of these companies is the supervisors or the owners, uh, you know, some of the smaller companies anyway, have all this training, but it never filters down to the workers. And my feeling is if it doesn't filter down to the workers, uh, it's not doing anybody any good, particularly if, if the supervisor isn't on site all the time. Great. So, you know, uh, I would say the vast majority of the guys that took our courses down at Merck were, you know, were the company owners or the principals or, you know, production supervisors or whatever. And, the guys that it was really that course was really designed for was was mold workers. That's why we called it a mold worker course. I see. All right, good good points. Let's get to Cliff. Yeah, Mike. Uh, what are your thoughts on measurement of settled dust uh, as part of an inspection? And what is a PRV? I'm a big fan of looking at settled dust. It sounds kind of geeky, but uh, I do like to look at settled dust uh, when we do a you know, an initial inspection on a diagnostic study or something. I'm going to collect uh, tape lifts of the two tape lifts of settled dust. Uh, one is going to, you know, if it's a, if it's an indication that there may be uh, moisture or damp environment problems, uh, I'll have that uh, tape lift looked at uh, by the mycologist for, uh, you know, the, the types of mold that are there, and I'll also uh, have we'll also characterize the dust. I'll take. Uh, uh, the report will tell me what what are the components. You know, dust isn't dust. Dust is skin cells and pollen and cellulose fibers and synthetic fibers and animal parts or animal hairs or whatever. So uh, I want to know what's in the dust, and then we'll also take a swab to culture out any viable uh, you know mold material there, and uh, that that'll give me a real good idea of what's going on there. I actually believe it's a better way to sample the air than to sample the air because you know an air sample is three or five minutes long. You only get so much you know, air volume in that sample. And uh, by sampling settled dust, you know, we'll go where we know we haven't, they haven't cleaned in a while. And uh, so whatever's been in the air over time will have settled out and we'll get a broader view of what may have, you know, may have been in the air over time. So uh, I am a major fan of, of looking at settled dust. We're actually going to po- uh, do a paper on that down in Austin at the uh, uh, Indoor Air 2011 show. So uh, 
people haven't even recognized. I'm actually fighting with an insurance company now uh, because uh, their CIEC said, told the insurance company he doesn't think uh, they should pay us for doing these dust analyses because it's not a recognized uh, or generally accepted uh, method of analyzing indoor environments. And I'm like, well, I don't know what, you know, I don't know what uh, references you're looking at, but uh, you may need to bring yourself up to speed there. But um, and then PRV, uh, we, we use all the tools available to us. See, I, I love this kind of work because you actually have to be able to think fast on your feet. In the old days, you know, I would take an air sample. I'd go to the list of PELs or, you know, TLPs or whatever. Say, all right, it's less than a PEL, so uh, they're doing good. Well, here we, we really don't have any PELs or TLPs or even action levels or anything like that. So you actually have to think on your feet. And what we do, you know, I don't know how anybody else does it. I read a lot of stories, but uh, we take samples of settled dust. We may take some air samples uh, for culturable and countable material. Uh, we'll take at least as many ref outdoor reference samples as we do indoor reference samples. Uh, we'll also measure moisture content in building materials that remain. And then we'll look at all the results in their entirety rather than just saying, well, this set isn't good and that set is good. Uh, and we'll We'll look at them all in their entirety and make a value judgment based on, you know, what what our experience is and what our knowledge is, and also understanding that you can never prove the negative, like uh, Dr. Harry Birch says. And we'll say basically something like, well, today it looks good. That's not a guarantee that it'll look good tomorrow. So, uh, you know, keep monitoring the indoor environment. And uh, I'm with ACGIH as far as. Uh, the ultimate determinant for the success or failure of a remediation job is how the folks feel after they go back into that environment that's been remediated, and that's always our bottom line. So we'll give them a little pamphlet on, you know, what to look for if you notice a uh, preponderance of allergy, you know, allergies acting up, or you're at, you know, your chest is tightening up, or you're getting some reactive airways or something like that. There may be more to the situation that's going on, and we need to look at that. Mike, in the uh Green Book, Recognition, Evaluation, and Control of Indoor Mold. I don't recall what chapter it was, but there's a chapter on, I guess it would be post-remediation verification. I, and they had, in that document, suggested the use of settled dust samples, but I believe they were weighing the settled dust samples. Are you familiar with that, and can you elaborate on it for us a little bit? Yeah, they were using uh, basically the NATCA uh, clearance for uh, ducks. And that came from Davidge Warfield, of all people, who, uh, you know, wrote that NATCA Standard 01. And they just carried it over to uh, an indoor environment uh, where you would sample uh, 100 square centimeter. Well, it depends on, you know, whatever unit area you're going to sample, and then you'd convert it to uh, per square feet or per 100 square centimeters. And they, based on that, uh, they would say uh, it's a pass-fail. I'm not a big fan of that because... My feeling is that if all that dust that uh, you sampled is less than, I think it's it's uh, 100 milligrams per square foot. Don't quote me on that. I really don't know because I don't use that. I have to be honest with you. If that's all mold spores, then I don't think that's a clean environment. Gotcha. But uh, they they do reference that that method, and you know, it, the more tools we have at our disposal, the better. And that, uh, particularly since, like I said, there aren't any you know pass fail kind of deals. It, 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 you have to use the art, and that's where the art and the science come in. 
Let me just ask one more, and then we, we need to go to our roundup because we've got uh, Glenn coming back, Pete, Cliff, and I. We all want to ask another question. But before we do, I'm curious because I know you're not an opinionated guy. What do you <laughs> think about the uh, ERMI, the Environmental Relative Moldiness Index? I guess it used to be EPA, and they changed it to environmental. I think it's a great uh, moneymaker for labs. Okay. <laughs> That's nice and sweet. Um, and what about QPCR? I haven't, I haven't used I used it once only because the Octoc we were working with wanted it, and I said, well, okay, we'll do it for you. But uh, ERMI was for sampling a square foot of carpet, not any other kind of area. You sample that square foot of carpet, and, you know, it's cool at, uh, you know, identifying, uh, well, hydrophilic fungi or fungi related to moisture and separating them from, you know, common uh, outdoor fungi, well, all fungi are outdoors, but the, the common fungi that uh, are less related to uh, damp environments. So uh, I think it's being misapplied out there uh, significantly. What about QPCR, uh, polymerase chain reaction? Do you use that oftentimes in your investigations? No, it's expensive, and uh, we don't do it as a matter of routine. Uh, again, we have used it a couple times, but basically uh, it. It's basically the same as ERMI. All it does is separate uh, you know, the genetic profile of all these different fungi, and they group them according to uh, you know, whether they're moisture-loving fungi or uh, you know, others. Okay. Mike, we're going to our roundup. We're going to all come back and do one more question. And uh, if we run over a couple minutes, do you have any time? I got all the time in the world for my buddy. We love you. Thank you, Mike. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up, move him on, move him on, hit him up, raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out, ride him in, raw All right, let's go to uh, Pete Consigli. Pete, do we have you on the line? Yeah, how's it going? Hey, all right, Pete, great. Welcome welcome back to IAQ Radio. Thanks for helping us set this one up and uh, the one we have next week. And I'm just curious, do you have anything you'd like to add or any questions you'd like to bring up for Mike? No, not really. I mean, Mike Mike was, uh, you know, you talked a little bit about in his resume and his history of, you know, some of the pioneering work that he's done in uh into air quality with the hygiene industrial hygiene association and of course he's done with the rea and the ws program over the years and he's kind of in that mold of guys like joe steebrook and mac pierce you know who i'm sure your listeners are aware because you've had them on there who have uh, really been critical coming from the, the different disciplines that they have to to really help the rest the cleaning restoration industry move forward and um you know it's just great to, to hear him talk and uh, you know visit about some of the old stores and whatnot and uh he's, he's continuing his work he's serving on the fire standard that uh ra is working on with the ieso and um you know he'll be a valuable guy you know with, from the safety uh, compliance area so uh thanks mike i appreciate it thanks Petey. all right pete thanks for joining us mike let me follow up on what pete mentioned i'm, I'm curious um, i know cliff has a little bit of a, a pet peeve about cleanup of fire-related uh, soot and that maybe people don't give it enough respect with respect to health and safety issues. Can you comment on that? 
Well, my understanding is a lot of these uh, soots from fires are acidic, so you'd want to protect yourself and uh, make sure that you don't have skin or eye contact with that kind of stuff. And uh, Cliff has a, a whole list of wonderful chemicals that deal with that kind of stuff. So uh, uh, whenever I have an issue with a fire, that's actually the last time I talked to Cliff. Uh, I said, Cliff, we have this stuff, and it's spray on fireproofing. It's got smoke odors in it. What do you want to? You know, what should what should I specify for? It? So uh, one of the things we say is we're smart enough to know what we don't know, and if we're even smarter, we know who the heck knows the answers, and we call them when we have them. So right. thank you, Cliff. Oh, well, Great. Let, let's go to Dr. Wow and then Cliff, and then I'll finish it up. So, Dieter, Dr. Dietrich Wow, do we have him? Let's see if we have any intro for him. Nope, no music. Dieter, do we have you on the line? Yes, I am here. Great. Any questions or comments? Uh, yeah, absolutely. A couple of comments. My voice sounds a little bit different from normal. I don't know why, what, when, and where. The other day I woke up and I couldn't speak. Hmm. Uh, and it's not a cold. I don't have a fever. I feel good, and... Uh, but, uh, so what the heck, I spray some stuff in there and heck with it. Maybe I should put something else on there, but that's... Of course not. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I have a quick question. Now, I didn't look it up. I'm sitting in front of my computer. I could have done it. Uh, that accident in New York a hundred years ago, was that that fire in the garment district? Yes, yes. And we I did get. I remember that that inflagration when we worked on uh, thermal decomposition stuff from uh, uh, from on all kinds of polymers which we were burning at the University of Pittsburgh. But I vaguely remember that, and I said, I think that's what it is. Yeah. Actually, your buddy Andy got it right. So we can. <laughs> yeah, you're, oh you're my God! Again, uh, triangle, go. triangle shirt waist. I think. Yeah, is triangle shirt yeah. waist facts. I will have to work with him again. And here comes the UPS man. My God, if I would have told him to come at one minute to two, uh, one, two minutes to one, <laughs> well, I would have. That well, would have been great. Why don't you take care of that, Dieter, and we'll have Cliff ask a question sure. while you are. Yeah, Mike. Do you right, thank you very much. Sir. All Don't right. forget Glenn. Don't forget Glenn. Yep. Go ahead. Uh, on the other hand, on that sampling, now I I understand um, what Mike is talking about. I said I like settled dust. I think that is settled dust. And I remember I was asked to take settled dust for asbestos fiber thirty years ago, or heaven knows when that was. And. Um, on one end, I get some information from it. If I, I'm sure there are a couple of areas in my house where I can take settled dust samples. They may be 20 years old. I still, my philosophy is, if I'm getting called today, there may be an incident 30 years ago that may have triggered something. I don't know that. Nobody knows that. I rather take also an air sample because when I get called in, I get called in because somebody had a bad experience in the house, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I take an air sample because that is what is in the air now. That's why they called me. So you can argue this one back and forth. There's no question about it. And I guess uh, in Florida now, uh, I, I like this, you know. You get a, you get a certificate or a, a, a whatever, a degree for anything by anything. <laughs> Maybe the University of Phoenix has a field day in Florida now. They can give, uh, they can certify everybody in in a one hour course or something like that. 
And you can do it on the computer. You don't even have to go there. Just send the money and you are certified. I have I, I, I get that in my junk mail every day uh, um, from the University of Florida, and I can buy a PhD, and uh, you name it, I can buy it over there, uh, which I don't think is the right idea of what we are doing. Uh, the other one, uh, which I kind of liked when I heard about it, the Hermie stuff from the EPA, uh, where they said, well, uh, I take the dust from a vacuum cleaner. That's certainly, and you, know, you don't you don't vacuum clean a hundred uh, uh, square uh, centimeters or a square foot or whatever square inch. Yeah, you, know, you use a vacuum cleaner throughout the house. Uh, I think there is something in there that tells me something um, about that house. On the other hand, um, I can go into any house without people without any problem and I can spend hundreds and thousands of dollars and take air samples and I can tell you what's in there unfortunately I cannot tell you whether one part per trillion of something I've never seen or heard about and it come maybe coming from an orange or from a banana or from coffee when you make it in the morning I don't know you know what that does so that is one of those things where you got to watch out. You know, how many, and, and Mike said that too, how many samples do I need to be, ah, let's say 99% or 95% sure? Well, obviously, the more the better. But I think there's a hell of a lot of information available out there that um, yeah, you spend a hell of a lot of money on and uh, you, you're not going to get really any good information on which you can base a professional opinion and say this is bad, good, or indifferent. So it goes back to those four P's Mike discussed then. Uh, well, that is right. Hey, there is nothing wrong with it. I'm sick and tired of hearing recognition, evaluation, and control. That is industrial hygiene. I have heard it a thousand times, and I start yawning when I hear it. But it's one of those things. Yeah, uh, we, we have to look at it. Sit back. Uh, my good old teacher and friend, uh, Mort Korn, said we add another one to it, recognition, evaluation, and control, and start with anticipation. Look forward. See what is around the corner. We talked about that today. And anticipate a situation. What do I have to do that I'm comfortable when I make a professional or uh, render an uh, a professional opinion and I say, eh, this. Yeah, well. Anyway, right. so that's where we stand. Congratulations, uh, Andy. I have to see him next month again, and uh, we take it from here. All right. Thank you, Dieter. As always, we appreciate having you on. And, Glenn, I apologize. I missed you there, but let me get you back on the line, and I, I'm sure you have a question for Mike. I do. I do. A, uh, kind of a comment question, too. But, um, Mike, you mentioned uh, the Indoor Air 2011 conference that's happening June 5th through the 10th in Austin, Texas. It's going to be uh, a great opportunity. Everyone should go to that. I was, um, I was very honored to be asked to be on a panel discussion with some distinguished folks, Steve Hayes, Elliot Horner, Andy Osk, Wayne Baker, and Don Weeks. And our topic is the professional practice of IEQ Consulting. Now, I got the softball one on this one because I get to address unqualified persons claiming the ability to provide professional-level consulting services. 
So I could just take the podcast from uh, the first half of the show, rebroadcast re- re- what Mike said, and I'm done. <laughs> no problem. So uh, now some of the other folks are going to take on some tougher topics. One of them is going to be uh, talking about a rigorous program of formal education, ongoing training, and years of experience that would be required to provide quote-unquote, true professional-level consulting services. That's not my topic on this panel, so I wouldn't let someone else worry about that. Where I'm coming to for you, Mike, is the third topic this panel is going to talk about is the connection between practitioners and the research community, which could ultimately define the differences in, uh, in what makes up a professional practice. Mike, that's what I was going to ask you to talk to a little bit about, because you've been on both sides of the fence. You've worked with practitioners. You've worked in the research community. There's obviously a disconnect. Do you think that by making a connection there and a meaningful connection, it will you know, define the differences in what a professional practice practitioner is for IEQ consulting? Yeah, I think that it, it ought to be easier to access all of these uh you know, esoteric research papers and data that uh, the researchers have developed and then uh, figure out a way to make it usable for the folks out in the field to uh, put these tools to good use. And I don't think there should be, you know, I think researchers and and practitioners ought to be spending a lot more time together. And uh, I think we could learn, you know, I consider myself much more of a practitioner than a researcher. And I know there's a lot I can learn from them, and I'm pretty sure there's a lot they can learn from me. Uh, funny you should ask, uh, Don Weeks asked me to uh, write a bunch of questions uh, that practitioners would like to ask of researchers. And uh, my number one question for those guys is, where do you get all this money to go into somebody's house or building or something and run all this te- all these tests and come up with meaningful data? And uh, I'm, I'm going to be interested to see what they say about that. If they have the answer to that, I may quit my day job. So. <laughs> yeah, I know where I'm going. <laughs> yeah, right. funny story. There, uh, there was a, a research study done a few years ago, and I know the grant was for about $350,000. And the upshot of the whole study was when you add a known amount of dust to a um, an environment where no air flows in or out, uh, surprisingly enough, the more dust that settles out onto the uh, surfaces, the less dust in the air, and then uh, the opposite was true, too. The more dust in the air, the less dust on surfaces. I'm like, where do I get free money like that to prove what I already knew before I even went into this? I love that. I'll tell you what. I could could ask you a bunch of questions on that, Mike, but um, it's a great comment because, you know, we get these questions. We get these studies that show things like, you know, HVAC cleaning doesn't help anything, and uh, it just seems to me that, you know, I don't even know that we need to study the fact that should we clean that stuff out. I think my, my question is going to come. Cliff, please. I, you know, I think what it boils down to is in doing indoor environmental consulting and inspections, certainly science is a really, really big part of it. But how important is common sense, Mike? I'll tell you what's very important. Common sense and the ability to communicate well with people that you're dealing with and the ability to resolve conflicts between uh, different parties. On the one side, you have the guys saying, well, this is all bad, and on the other side, no, it's not. And uh, So conflict resolution is a very, very big component of any indoor environmental study. Usually 
the, the employees are going to say, oh, it's horrible in here, and the management's going to say, no, it's not that bad, come on. <laughs> so uh, getting uh, both those guys on the same page, and uh, there's actually uh, a, a whole bunch of books on that. Peter Sandman uh, has some books on uh, you know, risk communication and hazard and outrage, and uh, you, you have to be a referee sometimes. But, yeah, uh, communication is, is right up at the top, at, at least as high up there as technical expertise. Mike, I've got a text question from a listener. I want to try and make sure we get this in before we go. It says, I have presently, I presently have both a CIH and CIEC and hopefully a CSP soon. Is it recommended to maintain the CIEC in doing indoor air quality work? Getting expensive is the comment. I can't answer that. Uh, I don't have a CIEC. Um, I don't know that I'm going to be going for one unless you know the power, unless it becomes necessary, depending on how all these state uh, laws go. Uh, CIHs have a pretty good lobby, and uh, you know they're pretty stringent about going out there and proselytizing. Uh, I don't think it would hurt, but you know you, you spend your money where where you think it'll do the most bang for your buck. I think you kind of answered it by saying that you have your CIH, you do just fine without. Yes. Going and getting a CIEC. Yeah, and he also said before, you know, the more initials that you have, the more marketing opportunities. Yeah, that's so. another point, yeah. If I was independently wealthy, I'd get every last set of initials out there, and then I'd look like, uh, you know, I don't know what I'd look like, but uh, <laughs> the, the family show, so I'm not going to comment any further. Hey, hey, Joe? Yes, sir. Yeah, Pete here. Um, I, Pete. I wanted to make a follow-up or comment. Mike was talking about, uh, when well, you were talking about the importance of communication in this this whole process of, uh, you know, certifications and the different credentials. I think sometimes what happens is too much emphasis is put on a lot of these credentials for the technical aspect, but we don't deal with the communication part of the business aspect, aspect of the profession. And just to quickly, I know we're towards the end of the show here, but in, in the, you know, last week, a uh, couple of weeks ago, you had Randy Rapp in there from Purdue, and he had talked a little bit about a survey that RAA helped fund to, um, established um, the body of knowledge in the CR program because it's going into into a redevelopment process now. And what that survey showed, statistically showed, is that practitioners in the field put equal weight on management uh, and communication, estimating those kind of skills as part of doing restoration remediation work as they did in the technical aspect of it. And I think that uh, is a very important point that um, sometimes we just overlook that, and that, you know, you, you actually need both, I think, to be a professional. Yeah, you kind of still have to be in business, too, right, Pete? I mean, you, you can be the best scientist in the world, but if you don't run your business very well and you're not around to help people, what good are you? Well, that's exactly right, and um, even in some presentations that our association has had over the years, we, we've invited the customers of restoration uh, companies, such as insurance companies, property managers, people like that. I know you have a property manager listenership to your show. Most of the time when they talk about issues that they have in dealing with, you know, IAQ, restoration, remediation type companies, they say a lot of the issues are just from lack of communication and improper understanding. It's not based on the technical expertise to do the job because I think in today's times, if you don't know what you're doing to actually physically do the job, you're probably, the market is going to clear those boys out and you're not going to be around very long. But it's the ones that understand these other issues and know how to deal with the people and um, the business aspect of it, I think you're going to be the most successful. So um, I know the upcoming show that you had mentioned a little earlier that you're going to be having with Chuck Olin in a couple of weeks, you're going to have a little bit of a focus on the business aspect of, of uh, you know, uh, running a 
restoration indoor air quality part. And I think that is an important topic. I'm glad to see that you guys are uh, bringing that to, to the listenership of the show, and it's just not all technically based. That's right. And actually, that's next week, Friday, April 1st. So we appreciate you uh, bringing that up, Pete. And thanks again for joining us. Okay. Well, my pleasure. And I'll, I'll look forward to be calling the next week. I'm sorry I didn't get a chance to uh, listen in on Randy's interview. But uh, I did download the podcast and listen to it. It was really well done. Thanks, Pete. Mike, before we go, anything we missed that you'd like to add? I'd love to get you back again because I've still got about 20 questions here we didn't get to. But uh... I'd love to come back again. Uh, I got a question for you. I always learn from my dad. Uh, if you get uncomfortable, answer a question with a question. And uh, I was watching the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, um, award ceremony the other night, and they said Neil Diamond's first hit was in 1966. And you have to be active for 25 years to, uh, you know, become eligible for the Hall of Fame, which would have been 91, and he gets inducted in 2011, 20 years later. And I'm thinking, what the heck took you guys so long to get me on this show here? <laughs> Mike, I don't know. We'll come back. I'll tell you what, we'll come back next time, and I'll talk about where I'm heading, which is uh, stuff that's going to save people money rather than cost people money, which is going to be energy efficiency and building performance and that kind of stuff. That's where I'm hitting. Love to. That would be great. And I, I will just say what I've been taught to say when I'm stumped. I don't know. Uh, and I do appreciate, though, you joining us this week. And I'll tell you what, after this week, we're certainly going to make sure we get you back again. Thanks, guys. I appreciate it. It's good talking to my old buddy. All, All right. right. Thank you, Mike. Wish you could, ne- next time, we hope you can make it to the studio again, too. I'm coming out there before, uh, you know before something happens. Sounds good. All right. Before we go, I also want to thank my co-host, the Z-Man. Always a pleasure, Always a pleasure. Our technical director, of course, Dr. Dietrich Wow, Pete Consigli from the RIA, of course, Glenn Fellman from Indoor Environment Connections, our engineer, Stone Cold, Austin Novak, but most importantly, you, our growing group of loyal listeners, had a lot of people on the line today, and downloads are coming along great. Please come back and join us next week when we have Chuck Violin. We're going to talk a little bit about some uh, management issues and business development, etc. Looking forward to that. Come back next Friday at noon for the next edition of IAQ Radio. Oh, where, oh, where did my hearing go? It was all right back ten years or so. I got me a job at a coal mine Working on a noisy old drag line They had signs up all over the place Wear your earplugs and mask for your face But who's got time to do what they say? I should have had to listen cause I can't hear today My best friend works in the gravel pit Working around crushers and dust and bits I think his hearing is worse than mine He's hard to talk to, he says what? All the time They're making new laws to cover these sounds So we have to get those desk bubbles down You have air arcing in the MG sets Impact noises over 8 seconds And all the vibrations from the crusher sound So we 
have to get those desk elbows down So where, where did my hearing go? It was alright back ten years or so Got to do what they say Or it gets worse every day This has been another IAQ Radio production. Call recording has been completed.